This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 32 Recorded on September 27, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kreit from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with my co-host on Skype, Andy Kolb from Nemours Children's in Delaware. Welcome, Andy. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you again. And today we're here with a special guest in the recording studio at Nationwide Children's, Dr. Eric Kodish from Cleveland. Thank you for being here, Dr. Kodish. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kodish is a world-renowned, uh, not only pediatric hematologist, oncologist, but also ethicist. He is currently the director of Cleveland Clinic's Center for Ethics, Humanities, and Spiritual Care. He also serves as the F.J. O'Neill Professor and Chairman of the Department of Bioethics and the Executive Director of the Cleveland Fellowship in Advanced Bioethics. He's also a professor of pediatrics at the Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Why don't we start just by hearing, the topic of the day is really about uh, the ethics of pediatric oncology clinical trials. You've studied those for over 10 years, phase three trials, and and more recently a series of publications with uh, the issues around uh, phase one trials. But could you back us up a bit first and tell us about your history and how you got into having an interest in kids' cancer and ethics in particular? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I went to medical school and was uh, deciding between uh, being a family doctor and a pediatrician and um, had an experience on the family medicine side as um, a student with the medical director of a nursing home and from that decided to become a pediatrician. And when I did my pediatrics uh, residency in Chicago, I was really drawn to kids with cancer and their families and and was looking for a career that would uh, provide what I consider the best of both worlds, that is, um, having long-term relationships with uh, kids and their families, um, but also um, doing more than general pediatrics. And I was really very interested in this notion of the history of childhood cancer wherein I talked to my mentors early on, and they remembered uh, a time when kids got cancer and died right away or shortly thereafter. And through this um, fantastic series of clinical trials, the cure rates uh, increased gradually. And I came into my pediatrics training and then fellowship at a pivot point where there was a recognition that there was a cost of that cure and that um, there were toxicities and uh, that we could certainly cure a lot of kids with cancer, but that they were left uh, devastated in some cases with heart disease and infertility, cognitive um, abnormalities. So the goal of designing studies that tried to decrease the toxicity while maintaining the cure rate um, was very much in the in the air when, when I started training. And it got me interested in medical ethics, too, and the design of clinical trials and the process of informed consent. So what, what year was that around? I finished medical school in 1986 and um, 
finished my pediatrics residency in 89 and went to the University of Chicago where uh, I was fortunate enough to do fellowships both in pediatric hemonc and in uh, medical ethics. So was there any particular patient that you encountered that had, say, toxicity from a clinical trial or any any story that sort of spoke to you in particular to make you want to? Well, I, I would say the, the patient I remember best in terms of um, the ethics of childhood cancer more broadly, and, and this doesn't relate to clinical trials specifically, but I think is a very um, meaningful and unfortunately common story. It was a young uh, girl who was 14 who had a Ewing sarcoma that was metastatic to her lungs. And um, she was in the end stages of her disease. She was in the ICU, and she wanted to um, keep fighting. Uh, she was having sclerosis done and chest tubes put in, and she was really suffering a great deal. Um, but it was her wish as a 14-year-old to continue to do that. Her parents saw her suffering. They knew that the end was near, and they wanted um, a DNR order, do not resuscitate. They wanted to stop uh, the different uh, treatments that were being done to their daughter and not for their daughter. But they also didn't want the daughter to think that the parents were giving up on her. And I was a fellow, and they asked me to um, play the role of bad guy, essentially, and to um, to let the patient know that I was making the decision to stop those things. And um, it was... It, it was one of these patients that, that you get very close to, and it was a very, very difficult moment. Um, but I went through it, and I agreed uh, to to do that, to play that role. And I hope uh, that it allowed the parents to, to have a more um, healthy bereavement process, if you will, um, because at that point uh, it was uh, it was. I think um, the responsibility of a physician to do that, even though it was a very burdensome responsibility. And, and that got me interested in pediatric ethics in a way that I had never been interested in before. It's a really very complicated situation. So I, I guess I wanted to move to just the summary of some of what your work is. You presented here at our institution, and we appreciate your being here and sharing your experience. Uh, and one of the things that struck me was... Uh, the disconnect, certainly in the phase one world, which is, you know, the use of test testing to find the right dose to, to do further testing on for a drug, but the disconnect between uh, what's the parent's understanding of the purpose of those studies and versus what is thought to be said by the physician. And this is, of course, I think the central question in my view about phase one studies. People usually enroll on phase one studies, I assume, because they're hoping for benefit. That's not really the purpose of phase one studies, other than societal benefit to move things forward. So I think you called it the therapeutic misconception. What can we do about that problem that exists ethically, I think, between what people perceive as the purpose of what's happening? I, I think we um, can try to improve the communication process in phase one trials so that parents do understand that the goal is to determine dose for phase two, um, but it has to be done in such a way that doesn't completely remove hope um, from the parents. And, and I think the hope is very legitimate and, and very valid, and to be ethically sensitive um, as we do that. I think we're not going to decrease the uh, accrual rates on phase one studies by doing that, although we certainly need to monitor for that and be, be vigilant about it. But it, it's a classic 
kind of utilitarian problem in, in medical ethics. The greatest good for the greatest number would have us continuing to do um, phase one trials. Uh, and the um, toxicities of phase one drugs are really quite modest. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the ethical calculation, too. Uh, I've encountered many families who um, are going to go the route of um, less scientific, let's say, um, things, some, some, uh, and I'll use a strong word, charlatans uh, who are out there who can take advantage of desperate families and families can mortgage their home and they can go into ter terrific debt for um, very unscientific sorts of um, goals. And I think that's part of the landscape that we need to keep in mind as well. So um, I think we need to do more research on informed consent, and, and I think we have the ability to design an intervention now to improve parental understanding, and that's the logical next step, and, and our research team is in discussion about, about what that intervention would look like. So would you say that's one of the biggest central tenets of what your work has uncovered, or what would, what would you say is some of the major challenges or findings? Yeah, I, I think um, the the major finding is that um, consent is a process and not a document and that there's a science of communication that goes around informed consent. And I, I think this probably applies to all informed consent, but especially for childhood cancer research, wherein the, um, the, the idea of see one, do one, teach one is not sufficient. And, and we need to be training our residents and fellows uh, that um, there, there is a science to informed consent and things like teach back and talk back, ways that we can ascertain whether um, families really do understand are very important methods that can be utilized. And then the last thing I'll say in that regard is that I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, that the current generation of pediatric oncologists um, see things differently. When, when I was training, I was told research is the standard of care for children with cancer. And as an ethicist, I knew that that couldn't be right because people should feel free to say no to research, but you can't have a kid be free to say no to standard care if it's going to save their lives. There was a problem there, and I think we've done work, and I'll give a lot of credit to the leadership of COG on this too, that the policy of COG now, the Children's Oncology Group, is that research is not the standard of care for children with cancer. Research defines the standard of care for future children with cancer. And that sounds like a very subtle difference, but actually I think it's quite important. And I think the younger generation of pediatric oncologists understands that now in a way that um, that, that we didn't when we were training. And, and I hope that our work has helped to move that ball forward a little bit. I guess we should move back a, a step to say that for those who aren't aware, you know, pediatric oncologists have a longstanding history of conducting research by necessity. When chemotherapy first came on the line, it was by a, by, well, by a pediatric pathologist, uh, but for children with cancer, Sydney Farber in, in Boston. And, but because pediatric cancer is fortunately relatively rare, no single institution has been able to enroll sufficient numbers on most trials to make definitive findings. So from early on, lots of pediatric centers collaborated for clinical trials. And so I think as a culture, we as a profession have a very strong history of of conducting trials, but what you point out in terms of formal training, we, we really didn't get any. Um, right. And so, although that's more and more common now to train folks in the ethics, in the structure, and in, in sort of the concepts behind clinical trials and the definition of research versus clinical care, 
Uh, it does seem like we've come a long way and uh, have been leading medicine in, in that regard. Right. I think I think there's a there's a movement that I, I mentioned earlier today toward a learning healthcare system, and in many ways, childhood cancer is the poster child for that learning healthcare system. The idea that many patients are in research, they benefit from being in research, and children collectively benefit from being in research. Um, a, a book that that was published within, within the past couple of years called "The Emperor of All Maladies" uh, is is one I would recommend to our listeners. The the history of how uh, research around childhood cancer and other cancer um, history developed is very very informative, and and I think pediatric oncology as a field can be very proud of that. The other um, uh, um, salutary effect of all of this is that it's a very small world. Is, is You mentioned, Dr. Kripe, uh, uh, childhood cancer is a rare disease, and pediatric oncologists around the country really do know each other and call each other and email each other when there's a, a, a child who's uh, who's got a challenging situation. We really do work collectively for the good of children, and, and it's also something that, that I think we can be very proud of. I think that also provides families with some sense of that wherever they go, and we use this when we, when we talk to newly diagnosed patients, they're going to get pretty much the same approach, the same treatment, because we are all collaborating and on the same page and trying to keep each other up to date on the latest and greatest. You mentioned in some of your work, as opposed to traditional research where you're basically gathering data and then making conclusions, you called it stakeholder-based research. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for asking. The the language of um, research, um, again, in, in the way that I learned it when I trained, is that, that investigators study research subjects. And um, with the advent of, of AIDS, uh, which you know came to be known as a disease caused by HIV, although when I was in medical school, that wasn't known. The disease uh, sort of uh, evolved when I was in school. Um, people began to um, say, we want to participate in research. We don't want to be a subject of research. We don't want to be studied. We want to partner with the investigators. And the investigators aren't going to learn about us. They're going to learn with us, and they're going to learn uh, 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 from us. The um, uh, breast cancer advocacy uh, groups um, have been very influential. Um, The uh, ACT UP group, which really pushed hard politically for rapid access to HIV drugs, and and a a real social movement through the 80s and 90s um, has led us to this point in in research ethics uh, more broadly, where um, I think there's a, a growing awareness that we call people who are in research participants, that they actively participate in research and it brings a measure of humility to um, us, I think, as scientists and investigators, because we don't have all the answers, and and we're not even the experts at defining what the right questions are. I think the authentic stakeholders are the people who are suffering from these diseases, who have real-life experience, and we need to, to be quite humble. We need to remember that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, that we should listen twice as much as we talk, and that, that we should have... Uh, open ears to, to our um, patients uh, and, and let them participate in research with us. The way that we've tried to do that in, in our small way with informed consent research is, is by first um, studying the consent process, but then inviting parents who have been in our studies to interpret the data. Uh, there is a certain amount of data, and as scientists, we interpret data 
but we don't have the only interpretation. And the kind of research we do, at least, is uh, is open to multiple interpretations. So why not ask the parents what this means to them and, and how um, we can do our jobs better as uh, investigators? So so it's it's been a really gratifying and, and I think successful way. And I, I'd encourage other people listening who are involved in research to try to reconceptualize their work so that it's more of a partnership. I'd like to, to talk a little bit about the informed consent process. We had a uh... Dr. Negley on last week and, and talking about secondary uh, malignancies and, and asked the question, given what he knows about secondary malignancies, how does that affect his informed consent process and, and how has that evolved over the years? And I think one of the things I've noticed through my training is that the informed consents and informed consent documents have, have grown in, in, in size and, and word count, but I don't know that they've grown in providing informed consent or at least providing information that that's that's easily um, interpretable and I'm wondering what your what your perspective is on that I, I give the example of a of a new patient with uh, AML for example who would be eligible for a, a phase three trial and and at least two different um, cancer control studies a registry study there's probably uh, institutional biobanking studies open at, at many different institutions. So now you have a newly diagnosed patient in the first 24 hours being given four different informed consent documents uh, in excess of several dozen pages, if not if not much more than that. Thank you for, for asking that, that question. I, I think the term for what you're describing is consent fatigue. And I've heard um, many people use that idea of consent fatigue, and I think we need to, to be cautious about that. The fact that there's four or five consent documents isn't really the issue, though. The, the, the issue is that there are four or five studies. If you want someone to really understand, I, I think as a scientific community, we need to be a little more restrained and to prioritize um, what our studies are. And I agree with you completely that the consent documents are too long, they're too complex, and they are, I think, primarily designed to um, uh, uh, protect the liability of the institutions in many cases rather, rather than to educate, which is really what they, sh they should be doing. So um, I'm, I'm not a, a proponent of um, long, complex consent documents. I understand that with uh, a, a growing bureaucracy of human subjects protection, it's kind of a, a necessary component of that. And um, what I've seen from the parents that we've studied is that they don't see consent documents as nearly as much of a problem as the physicians tend to see consent documents. And it, it is partly, I think, because physicians may be doing consent four, five, six, seven times a day. For a family, they only do it once, and they, they can view the consent document as a, a helpful adjunct, if you will, a, a supplemental material. But the main, the main focus, I think, has to be the discussion and, and the back and forth, um, sort of reciprocal um, communication dialogue. That that's really what good informed consent is about. So, so can I ask, what is your personal approach uh, to a new patient when a when a new patient comes in and? And may have you know several scientifically sound and important studies for which they're eligible, and and a short period of time to make some some crucial uh, decisions. Yeah, I, I have an approach that 
puts the interests of the child before the interests of the science. And, and I think most pediatric oncologists have that, if not all. So the first thing is, is how do you take good care? How do you look after this child and their family? And then within that, um, I would say there may be some families who appear to be capable of multitasking and of, of dealing with consent decisions about multiple studies. But another family, I think it might be perfectly fine to be a beneficent paternalist and to say these folks are overwhelmed and I'm not going to present any study to them. It's, it's okay because we're going to give them excellent care and the most important thing is to give them excellent care. Now, I realize there are institutional pressures to get kids on studies, and there are good utilitarian reasons why we want to have a lot of kids be on studies or be offered studies. And most families do say yes when you have a white coat, and it, it appears that as, as if the child's life is in the hands of the doctor. It's very hard for families to, to say no to that. And some of the studies are very low-risk studies, like a biobanking study that you mentioned. So, so I, I think that um, it really depends a lot on, on the situation, but the, the primary message is that the individual needs of the child have to come first. You had talked about the need for better communication. Obviously, that is something that came out of your work. The audience for this podcast hasn't seen those data, but there was, again, I alluded to quite the disconnect uh, between what is understood by patients and their families versus what is perceived to be told to them. What can we do about that? I think there are uh, uh, quite a few things that, that we can do better. A lot of them have to do with promoting trust between the physician investigator and the patient and, and family. And as I said before, making it clear to patients and families that the needs of the individual child will always come ahead of the needs of science. If you set that as the kind of foundation of the relationship, then you can move on to some of the details about uh, exchanging information, making it clear that parents are free to say no, uh, I think paradoxically increases the chances that they will say yes. And taking it in stages uh, has, has really been shown to be effective uh, for um, randomization and phase three trials. And for some of our listeners who may not um, understand or know about randomization, it's really a very important um, statistical mechanism in, in study design to be sure that, that we have um, adequate comparison groups. And for the perspective of a parent or family, it comes down to like flipping a coin so that uh, a patient may get treatment A or treatment B, and it's a flip of the coin that determines which of those that can be very scary for patients and families. It can also actually be kind of reassuring for physicians who aren't sure which is better. Um, the psychology of randomization is a really, really interesting thing. And the idea of equipoise is critical ethically. It suggests that if treatment A and treatment B are comparable and we don't know which is better, then it's completely ethically justifiable to proceed with the study. But once equipoise is disturbed, and there is knowledge that treatment A is either less effective or more toxic, then all children must be um, given uh, treatment B. So that kind of um, discussion with families, uh, equipoise is a big fancy word and not so easy to understand, but I think we need to help um, with kind of scientific literacy for our families and, and patients so that they can understand that there's um, a developing body of evidence that's going to help us take care of their child, but also help us with, with the care of future children. One of the things that's been frustrating, I think, for 
us physicians as well as for families is the pace of drug discovery, the pace of phase one research, you know, the way it's done. We have to wait till a lot of studies are done in adults, and then we start at a certain percentage dose of the adults and kids, and nationally we'll enroll three patients at a time, wait for them to have their experience and make sure it's okay to go up to the next level. Then we open a study nationally at very limited institutions that are the phase one institutions. Many times, lots of the studies at any given moment are closed because they only open for a brief period of time, then patients enroll, and then we wait. So is there anything, maybe this is a little bit outside your 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 realm of study, but since you're in this sort of field, you might have heard heard people talk about this or have thoughts about it. Anything we can do differently about how we conduct these kinds of studies to move the pace quicker? Absolutely. I, I think that there is, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be a, a member of an um, Institute of Medicine committee last year that looked at these issues um, that was chaired by Tom Boat, who's the dean at, at Cincinnati. And, and this was not specific to cancer. This was overall for pediatric research. Children um, are clearly a vulnerable population, and the federal regulations provide them with additional protections, as is appropriate. But as a result of that, children have been overprotected from research risk, and pediatricians uh, don't have evidence on how to best provide care for children as a result of that. So about 10 or 15 years ago now, Congress, in its wisdom, passed a um, set of laws that incentivized drug companies to do more research with children, gave them real uh, tangible financial incentives to, um, to study kids. And it also said the IOM should do a study of this in 10 years or 15 years to see if children were harmed. And, and that's the panel that I was on. Um, and I, I think to summarize what we learned is that children have not been harmed in the 10 or 15 years. And, and I, I think as a matter of public policy, we should be redoubling our efforts to further incentivize drug companies to do research because in the end, it's about the money. And if drug companies have uh, a requirement to satisfy their shareholders and, and to make a profit that is uh, a legitimate um, incentive for them, we can't blame them for not wanting to do pediatric research. Thank God childhood cancer is a rare disease and there isn't a big market there. So, so I think we should be knocking on the doors of our, of our policymakers and our, our legislators and, and, and executive leaders to make the point that, that we need to do more pediatric cancer research and that it can be done in a, in a way that's safe and that still puts the needs of individual children first. I guess we got to keep pushing that message, and there are probably things our listeners can do to help push that message to their representatives. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a child advocacy issue. Andy, any, any final questions for Dr. Kodish? Yeah, I, I do. When we were talking about enrollment in Phase one trials, you, you mentioned the idea of hope and how hope kind of governs families' um, participation in these trials. And and I think one of the challenges that, that we have is, as clinicians is is managing that hope, either from a, a very open and, and straightforward way or, or a more maternalistic approach. And, and for some families, um, they will accept uh, significant risks for a one in a million chance at, at life or uh, may accept risks only if, it's, if, if the odds are better than one in ten. And I, again, in your practice, I wonder how you how you manage that range of, of how people define hopeful um, trials. I would say the most important thing is to be humble and to recognize the heterogeneity that you mentioned and to meet people where they're at. 
so that for the family that is willing to attempt to win the lottery, uh, if you will, um, I think we can we can tolerate that. We can even support that as long as it's not imposing undue burdens and, and pain and suffering on the child. Uh, and as we've said before, with, with phase one studies, the dosing is such that the, the toxicities are, are quite low. And in fact, some people have said the biggest ethical problem with phase one studies is that the dosing is too low. And, and that's a pretty interesting idea. Um, on the other hand, I, I think informed consent is the right um, model or doctrine. And in informed consent, we teach always about what should you talk about, risks, benefits, and alternatives. And, and I, th I think we fall a little short sometimes in the alternatives piece of that. We talk about risk and benefit a lot when we do informed consent. But, but I, I think um, hospice philosophy care really has to be part of the alternatives that is discussed with, with families when phase one uh, studies are, are on the table. And, and, and I think it can be done in such a way that it's not an either or uh, question. Unfortunately, for pediatric hospice care, uh, for, for many uh, situations, children are eligible to get hospice care while still receiving antineoplastic therapy. And, and in adults, unfortunately, it's not like that. So we, we have a poetic license, if you will, in, in our practice in childhood cancer that I think we should fully utilize. Andy, your question uh, uh, leads to more questions, uh, and it'll be my last, I think, because we'll need to wrap this up. But studies, as, as you and I had discussed, Dr. Kodish, earlier, have suggested there is benefit to phase one one study. Some patients do respond to the treatments either with, and it's a small percentage, 10 or 15 is what I've seen in terms of tumor shrinkage or, or re response. Uh, a, a larger percent may have stabilization of disease for a while or, or may just feel better for a while, um, and maybe some of that's placebo effect. But one of the things you had talked about doing is going back and visiting with families or having a retreat of those who had whose children had passed away but who had enrolled on phase one trials and to the T, every one of them had not regretted their decision to enroll on a phase one trial, yet none of them had those trials save their, their children. So one of the things that's always frustrated me is on these consent forms, we're required by the IRBs to say, your child will not have benefit by enrolling on this study. And to me, there's a big disconnect. I think text matters a lot. And I think the IRBs are probably on solid ground to require the document to say something to the effect of your child is unlikely to benefit from this. I'll kind of turn your question on its head and say that in subpart D of the regulations the way that govern um, in pediatric research, there's four categories. There's minimal risk research. There's research with the prospect of direct benefit. There is more than minimal risk with no prospect of benefit. And then there's a category called 407, which is a, a, a fair amount of risk and no benefit. In the final category, only the Secretary of Health and Human Services can approve that. It's very, very rare. But the um, the second category mentored, mentioned talks about the prospect of direct benefit, and IRBs are uh, allowed to approve research with the prospect of direct benefit. And, and I've written, published on this before. I think that phase one trials fit within that because the language is prospect of benefit. It's not a guarantee of benefit. There's never a guarantee of benefit. So I, I, I share your frustration if, if, if there are IRBs that, that are as concrete and black and white as saying your child will not benefit. And then the last thing I'll say is that placebo effect isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be a very, very 
helpful thing, and I, I think there may well be some some important placebo effects in in phase one studies. But yet the families that you spoke to, none of those, from what I understand, were played a role in their satisfaction of having enrolled in phase one studies. It was more just being able to do something. Is that right? That's what we heard. That that there's a strong need to do something, and that. Um, uh, in in retrospect, they had no regrets, and 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 they were at least happy to have um, done something uh, that um, showed a legacy uh, of their child of having helped other kids. Well, thank you very much for being here. It's been a, a great discussion. Thank you, Andy, for uh, co-hosting. That's great. To, great to be a part of it. Thank you. And Rick, thanks for for being here and, and spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. It's possible that our listeners, in fact, with this topic in particular, I think it may be likely that some of our listeners will have questions. And um, if we do get any in, uh, we'll forward them to you and maybe um, read your responses or, or even have you back for a future episode. So if you do have questions or comments, please send us a note at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. I usually send out a tweet if we post a new episode and you can sign up for automatic notification on the um, solving kids cancer website get an email or whatnot about some new postings thanks to the team at solving kids cancer a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children the team includes donald ludwinski our executive producer and jenny song director of communications and scott kennedy and john lennon who are the founding co-directors of solving kids cancer and thanks today to our sound engineer jeff thurston for all his help so remember the more we learn communicate share ideas and work together the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable as always keep up the fight and thanks for listening to this week in pediatric oncology